CD6 At a time like this, his hands automatically patted his pockets and found nothing at all but half a bag of jelly babies melted into a sticky mass and an apple core. Neither offered much consolation. What Cutwell wanted was what any normal wizard wanted at a time like this, which was a smoke. He'd have killed for a cigar and would have gone as far as a flesh wound for a squashed dog end. He pulled himself together. Resolution was good for the moral fibre. The only trouble was the fibre didn't appreciate the sacrifices he was making for it. They said that a truly great wizard should be permanently under tension. You could have used Cutwell for a bowstring. He turned his back on the brassicard landscape and made his way back down the winding steps to the main part of the palace. Still, he told himself, the campaign appeared to be working. The population didn't seem to be resisting the fact that there was going to be a coronation, although they weren't exactly clear about who was going to be crowned. There was going to be bunting in the streets, and Cutwell had arranged for the town square's main fountain to run, if not with wine, then at least with an acceptable beer made from broccoli. There was going to be folk dancing, at sword point if necessary. There would be races for children, there would be an ox roast, the royal coach had been regilded, and Cutwell was optimistic that people could be persuaded to notice it as it went by. The high priest at the Temple of Blind Eo was going to be a problem. Cutwell had marked him down as a dear old soul whose expertise with the knife was so unreliable that half of the sacrifices got tired of waiting and wandered away. The last time he'd tried to sacrifice a goat, it had time to give birth to twins before he could focus, and then the courage of motherhood had resulted in it chasing the entire priesthood out of the temple. The chances of him succeeding in putting the crown on the right person, even in normal circumstances, were only average, Cutwell had calculated, he'd have to stand alongside the old boy and try tactfully to guide his shaking hands. Still, even that wasn't the big problem. The big problem was much bigger than that. The big problem had been sprung on him by the Chancellor after breakfast. Fireworks, Cutwell had said. That's the sort of thing you wizard fellows are supposed to be good at, isn't it? said the Chancellor, as crusty as a weak old loaf. Fleshes and bangs and what not. I remember a wizard when I was a lad. I'm afraid I don't know anything about fireworks, said Cutwell, in tones designed to convey that he cherished his ignorance. Lots of rockets, the Chancellor reminisced happily. Archean candles, thunder flashes, and thingies that you can hold in your hand. It's not a proper coronation without fireworks. Yes, but you see, good man, said the Chancellor briskly, knew we could rely on you. Plenty of rockets, you understand, and to finish with there must be a set piece, mind you, something really breathtaking, like a portrait of... Uh, of... His eyes glazed over in a way that was becoming depressingly familiar to Cutwell. The Princess Kelly, he said wearily. Ah, yes, her, said the Chancellor. A portrait of... Uh, who you said... In fireworks. Of course, it's probably all pretty simple stuff to you wizards, but the people like it. Nothing like a good blowout and a blow-up and a bit of a balcony waving to keep the loyalty muscles in tip-top shape. That's what I always say. See to it, rockets, with runes on. An hour ago, Cutwell had thumbed through the index of the monster fun grimoire and had cautiously assembled a number of common household ingredients and put a match to them. Funny thing about eyebrows, he mused. You never really noticed them until they'd gone. Red around the eyes and smelling slightly of smoke, Cutwell ambled towards the royal apartments past bevies of maids engaged in whatever it was maids did, which always seemed to take at least three of them. 
Whenever they saw Cutwell, they would usually go silent, hurry past with their heads down, and break into muffled giggles along the corridor. This annoyed Cutwell. Not, he told himself quickly, because of any personal considerations, but because wizards ought to be shown more respect. Besides, some of the maids had a way of looking at him which caused him to think distinctly unwizardly thoughts. Truly, he thought, the way of enlightenment is like unto half a mile of broken glass. He knocked on the door of Kay Lee's suite. A maid opened it. Is your mistress in? he said, as haughtily as he could manage. The maid put her hand to her mouth. Her shoulders shook. Her eyes sparkled. A sound like escaping steam crept between her fingers. I can't help it, Cutwell thought. I just seem to have this amazing effect on women. Is it a man? came Kay Lee's voice from within. The maid's eyes glazed over and she tilted her head, as if not sure of what she'd heard. It's me, Cutwell, said Cutwell. Oh, that's all right then. You can come in. Cutwell pushed past the girl and tried to ignore the muffled laughter as the maid fled the room. Of course, everyone knew a wizard didn't need a chaperone. It was just the tone of the princess's, oh, that's all right then, that made him writhe inside. Kaylee was sitting at her dressing table, brushing her hair. Very few men in the world ever find out what a princess wears under her dresses, and Cutwell joined them with extreme reluctance, but with remarkable self-control. Only the frantic bobbing of his Adam's apple betrayed him. There was no doubt about it. He'd been no good for magic for days. She turned and he caught a whiff of talcum powder. For weeks, damn it, for weeks. You look a bit hot, Cutwell. Is something the matter? No. I'm sorry? He shook himself. Concentrate on the hairbrush, man, the hairbrush. Just a bit of magical experimenting, ma'am. Only superficial burns. Is it still moving? I'm afraid so. Kaylee turned back to the mirror. Her face was set. Have we got time? This was the bit he'd been dreading. He'd done everything he could. The royal astrologer had been sobered up long enough to insist that tomorrow was the only possible day the ceremony could take place, so Cutwell had arranged for it to begin one second after midnight. He'd ruthlessly cut the score of the royal trumpet fanfare. He'd timed the high priest's invocation to the gods and then sub-edited heavily. There was going to be a row when the gods found out. The ceremony of the anointing with sacred oils had been cut to a quick dab behind the ears. Skateboards were an unknown invention on the disc. If they hadn't been, Kaylee's trip up the aisle would have been unconstitutionally fast. And it still wasn't enough. He nerved himself. I think possibly not, he said. It could be a very close thing. He saw her glare at him in the mirror. How close? Um, very. Are you trying to say it might reach us at the same time as the ceremony? Mm, more sort of, well, before it said Cutwell wretchedly. There was no sound but the drumming of Kaylee's fingers on the edge of the table. Cutwell wondered if she was going to break down or smash the mirror. Instead, she said, How do you know? He wondered if he could get away with saying something like, I'm a wizard, we know these things, but decided against it. The last time he'd said that, she'd threatened him with the axe. I asked one of the guards about that inn Mort talked about, he said. Then I worked out the approximate distance it had to travel. Mort said it was moving at a slow walking pace, and I reckon his stride is about... As simple as that? You didn't use magic? Only common sense. It's a lot more reliable in the long run. She reached out and patted his hand. Poor old Cutwell, she said. I am only twenty, ma'am. She stood up and walked over to the dressing room. One of the things you learn when you're a princess is always to be older than anyone of inferior rank. 
Yes, I suppose there must be such things as young wizards, she said over her shoulder. It's just that people always think of them as old. I wonder why this is. Riggers of the calling, ma'am, said Cutwell, rolling his eyes. He could hear the rustle of silk. What made you decide to become a wizard? Her voice was muffled, as if she had something over her head. It's indoor work with no heavy lifting, said Cutwell, and I suppose I wanted to learn how the world worked. Have you succeeded, then? No. Cutwell wasn't much good at small talk, otherwise he'd never have let his mind wander sufficiently to allow him to say, What made you decide to become a princess? After a thoughtful silence, she said, It was decided for me, you know. Sorry, I... Being royal is a sort of family tradition. I expect it's the same with magic. No doubt your father was a wizard. Cutwell gritted his teeth. Um... No, he said. Not really. Absolutely not, in fact. He knew what she would say next, and here it came, reliable as the sunset, in a voice tinged with amusement and fascination. Oh, is it really true that wizards aren't allowed to... Well, if that's all, I really should be going, said Cutwell loudly. If anyone wants me, just uh, follow the explosions. I... <clears throat> Cayley had stepped out of the dressing room. Now, women's clothes were not a subject that preoccupied Cutwell much. In fact, usually when he thought about women, his mental picture seldom included any clothes at all. But the vision in front of him really did take his breath away. Whoever had designed the dress didn't know when to stop. They'd put lace over the silk and trimmed it with black vermin, and strung pearls anywhere that looked bare, and puffed and starched the sleeves, and then added silver filigree, and then started again with the silk. In fact, it really was amazing what could be done with several ounces of heavy metal, some irridated mollusks, a few dead rodents, and a lot of thread wound out of insects' bottoms. The dress wasn't so much worn as occupied. If the outlying flounces weren't supported on wheels, then Cayley was stronger than he'd given her credit for. What do you think? she said, turning slowly. This was worn by my mother, and my grandmother, and her mother. What, altogether? said Cutwell, quite prepared to believe it. How can she get into it? he wondered. There must be a door round the back. It's a family heirloom. It's got real diamonds on the bodice. Which bit's the bodice? This bit. Cutwell shuddered. It's very impressive, he said, when he could trust himself to speak. You don't think it's perhaps a bit mature, though? It's queenly. Yes, but perhaps it won't allow you to move very fast. I have no intention of running. There must be dignity. Once again the set of her jaw traced the line of her descent all the way to her conquering ancestor, who preferred to move very fast at all times, and knew as much about dignity as could be carried on the point of a sharp spear. Cutwell spread his hands. All right, he said. Fine. We all do what we can. I just hope Mort has come up with some ideas. It's hard to have confidence in a ghost, said Cayley. He walks through walls. I've been thinking about that, said Cutwell. It's a puzzle, isn't it? He walks through things only if he doesn't know he's doing it. I think it's an industrial disease. What? I was nearly sure last night. He's becoming real. But we're all real. At least you are, and I suppose I am. But he's becoming more real, extremely real, nearly as real as death. And you don't get much realer. Not much realer at all. Are you sure? said Albert suspiciously.
Of course, said Isabel. Work it out yourself, if you like. Albert looked back at the big book, his face a portrait of uncertainty. Well, they could be about right, he conceded with bad grace, and copied out the two names on a scrap of paper. There's one way to find out, anyway. He pulled open the top drawer of Death's desk and extracted a big iron key ring. There was only one key on it. What happens now? said Mort. We've got to fetch the lifetimers, said Albert. You have to come with me. Mort, hissed Isabel. What? What you just said, she lapsed into silence and then added, Oh, nothing, it just sounded odd. I only asked what happens now, said Mort. Yes, but you... Oh, never mind. Albert brushed past them and sidled out into the hallway like a two-legged spider until he reached the door that was always kept locked. The key fitted perfectly. The door swung open. There wasn't so much as a squeak from its hinges, just a swish of deeper silence. And the roar of sand. Mort and Isabel stood in the doorway transfixed as Albert stamped off between the aisles of glass. The sound didn't just enter the body via the ears, it came up through the legs and down through the skull and filled up the brain until all that it could think of was the rushing, hissing grey noise, the sound of millions of lives being lived and rushing towards their inevitable destination. They stared up and out at the endless ranks of lifetimers, everyone different, everyone named. The light from torches ranged along the walls, picked highlights off them so that a star gleamed on every glass. The far walls of the room were lost in a galaxy of light. Mort felt Isabel's fingers tighten on his arm. When she spoke, her voice was strained. Mort, some of them are so small. I know. Her grip relaxed very gently, like someone putting the top ace on a house of cards and taking their hand away gingerly so as not to bring the whole edifice down. Say that again, she said quietly. I said I know. There's nothing I can do about it. Haven't you been in here before? No. She had withdrawn slightly and was staring at his eyes. It's no worse than the library, said Mort, and almost believed it. But in the library you only read about it. In here you could see it happening. Why are you looking at me like that? he added. I was just trying to remember what colour your eyes were, she said, because... If you two have had quite enough of each other, bellowed Albert above the roar of sand, this way. Brown, said Mort to Isabel. They're brown. Why? Hurry up. You'd better go and help him, said Isabel. He seems to be getting quite upset. Mort left her, his mind a sudden swamp of uneasiness, and stalked across the tiled floor to where Albert stood impatiently tapping a foot. What do I have to do? he said. Just follow me. The room opened out into a series of passages, each one lined with the hourglasses. Here and there the shelves were divided by stone pillars inscribed with angular markings. Albert glanced at them occasionally. Mainly he strode through the maze of sand as though he knew every turn by heart. Is there one glass for everyone, Albert? Yes. This place doesn't look big enough. Do you know anything about M-dimensional topography? Uh, no. Then I shouldn't aspire to hold any opinions if I was you, said Albert. He paused in front of a shelf of glasses, glanced at the paper again, ran his hand along the row and suddenly snatched up a glass. The top bulb was almost empty. Hold this, he said. If this is right, then the other should be somewhere near. Ah, here. Mort turned the two glasses around in his hand. 
One had all the markings of an important life, while the other one was squat and quite unremarkable. Mort read the names. The first seemed to refer to a nobleman in the Agatean Empire regions. The second was a collection of pictograms that he recognised as originating in Turnwise Clatch. Over to you, Albert sneered. The sooner you get started, the sooner you'll be finished. I'll bring Binky round to the front door. Do my eyes look all right to you? said Mort anxiously. Nothing wrong with them that I can see, said Albert. Bit red round the edges, bit bluer than usual. Nothing special. Mort followed him back past the long shelves of glass, looking thoughtful. Isabel watched him take the sword from the rack by the door and test its edge by swishing it through the air, just as death did, and grinning mirthlessly at the satisfactory sound of the thunderclap. She recognised the walk. He was stalking. Mort? she whispered. Yes. Something's happening to you. I know, said Mort, but I think I can control it. They heard the sound of hooves outside, and Albert pushed the door open and came in, rubbing his hands. Right, lad, no time to... Mort swung the sword at arm's length. It scythed through the air with a noise like ripping silk and buried itself in the doorpost by Albert's ear. On your knees, Alberto Malik! Albert's mouth dropped open. His eyes rolled sideways to the shimmering blade a few inches from his head, and then narrowed to tight little lines. You surely wouldn't dare, boy, he said. Mort! The syllable snapped out as fast as a whiplash and twice as vicious. There was a pact, said Albert, but there was the barest gnat song of doubt in his voice. There was an agreement. Not with me. There was an agreement. Where would we be if we could not honour an agreement? I don't know where I would be, said Mort softly. But I know where you would go. That's not fair. Now it was a whine. There's no justice. There's just me. Stop it, said Isabel. Mort, you're being silly. You can't kill anyone here. Anyway, you don't really want to kill Albert. Not here, but I could send him back to the world. Albert went pale. You wouldn't. No? I can take you back and leave you there. I shouldn't think you've got much time left, have you? Have you? Don't talk like that, said Albert, quite failing to meet his gaze. You sound like the master when you talk like that. I could be a lot worse than the master, said Mort, evenly. Isabel, go and get Albert's book, will you? Mort, I really think you're... Shall I ask you again? She fled from the room, white-faced. Albert squinted at Mort along the length of the sword and smiled a lopsided, humourless smile. You won't be able to control it forever, he said. We don't want to. I just want to control it for long enough. You're receptive now, see. The longer the master is away, the more you'll become just like him. Only it'll be worse, because you'll remember all about being human. And what about you, then? snapped Mort. What can you remember about being human? If you went back, how much life have you got left? Ninety-one days, three hours and five minutes, said Albert promptly. I knew he was on my trail, see? But I'm safe here, and he's not such a bad master. Sometimes I don't know what he'd do without me. Yes, no one dies in death's own kingdom, and you're pleased with that, said Mort. 
I'm more than two thousand years old, I am. I've lived longer than anyone in the world. Mort shook his head. You haven't, you know, he said. You've just stretched things out more. No one really lives here. The time in this place is just a sham. It's not real. Nothing changes. I'd rather die and see what happens next than spend eternity here. Albert pinched his nose reflectively. Yes, well, you might, he considered, but I was a wizard, you know. I was pretty good at it. They put up a statue to me, you know. But you don't live a long life as a wizard without making a few enemies, see? Ones who wait on the other side. He sniffed. They ain't all got two legs either. Some of them ain't got legs at all. Or faces. Death don't frighten me. It's what comes after. Help me, then. What good will that do me? One day you might need some friends on the other side, said Mort. He thought for a few seconds and added, If I were you, it wouldn't do any harm to give my soul a bit of a last-minute polish. Some of those waiting for you might not like the taste of that. Albert shuddered and shut his eyes. You don't know about what you talk about, he added, with more feeling than grammar. Else you wouldn't say that. What do you want from me? Mort told him. Albert cackled. Just that? Just change reality? <laughs> you can't. There isn't any magic strong enough anymore. The great spells could have done it, nothing else. And that's it. So you might as well do as you please, and the best of luck to you. Isabel came back a little out of breath, clutching the latest volume of Albert's life. Albert sniffed again. The tiny drip on the end of his nose fascinated Mort. It was always on the point of dropping off, but never had the courage. Just like him, he thought. You can't do anything to me with the book, said the old wizard warily. I don't intend to, but it strikes me that you don't get to be a powerful wizard by telling the truth all the time. Isabel, read out what's being written. Albert looked at him uncertainly, Isabel read. You can't believe everything written down there. He burst out, knowing in the flinty pit of his heart that Mort certainly could, Isabel read. Stop it, he shouted, trying to put at the back of his mind the knowledge that even if reality could not be stopped, it might be possible to slow it down a little. How, intoned Mort in the leaden tones of death, began Isabel dutifully. Yes, yes, all right, you didn't bother with my bit, snapped Mort irritably. Pardon me for living, I'm sure. No one gets pardoned for living. And don't talk to me like that either, thank you. It doesn't frighten me, she said. She glanced down at the book, where the moving line of writing was calling her a liar. Tell me how, wizard, said Mort. My magic's all I've got left, wailed Albert. You don't need it, you old miser. You don't frighten me, boy. Look into my face and tell me that. Mort snapped his fingers imperiously. Isabel bent her head over the book again. Albert looked into the blue glow of those eyes and the last of his defiance drained away, she read, for he saw not just death, but death with all the human seasonings of vengeance and cruelty and distaste, and with a terrible certainty he knew that this was the last chance and Mort would send him back into time and hunt him down and take him and deliver him bodily into the dark dungeon dimensions where creatures of horror would dot, 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 she finished. It's just dots for half a page. That's because the book daren't even mention them, whispered Albert. 
He tried to shut his eyes, but the pictures in the darkness behind his eyelids were so vivid that he opened them again. Even Mort was better than that. All right, he said. There is one spell. It slows down time over a little area. I'll write it down, but you'll have to find a wizard to say it. Or you can do that. Albert ran a tongue like an old loofer over his dry lips. There is a price, though, he added. You must complete the duty first. Isabel, said Mort. She looked at the page in front of her. He means it, she said. If you don't, then everything will go wrong and he'll drop back into time anyway. All three of them turned to look at the great clock that dominated the hallway. Its pendulum blade soared slowly through the air, cutting time into tiny little pieces. Mort groaned. There isn't enough time, he groaned. I can't do both of them in time. The master would have found time, observed Albert. Mort wrenched the blade from the doorway and shook it furiously but ineffectually towards Albert, who flinched. Write down the spell, then, he shouted, and do it fast. He turned on his heel and stalked back into Death's study. There was a large disc of the world in one corner, complete down to solid silver elephants standing on the back of a great Artuin cast in bronze and more than a metre long. The great rivers were represented by veins of jade, the deserts by powdered diamond, and the most notable cities were picked out in precious stones. Ankh Morpork, for instance, was a carbuncle. He plonked the two glasses down at the approximate locations of their owners and flopped down in Death's chair, glaring at them, willing them to be closer together. The chair squeaked gently as he swivelled from side to side, glowering at the little disc. After a while, Isabel came in, treading softly. Albert's written it down, she said quietly. I've checked the book. It isn't a trick. He's gone and locked himself in his room now, and... Look at these two. I mean, will you look at them? I think you should calm down a bit, Mort. How can I calm down with... Look, this one over here almost in the great Neff, and this one is right in best pelagic, and then I've got to get back to Stolat. That's a 10,000-mile round trip, however you look at it. It can't be done. I'm sure you'll find a way, and I'll help. He looked at her for the first time and saw she was wearing her outdoor coat, the unsuitable one with the big fur collar. You? What could you do? Binky can easily carry two, said Isabel meekly. She waved a paper package vaguely. I packed her something to eat. I could hold open doors and things. Mort laughed mirthlessly. That won't be necessary. I wish you'd stop talking like that. I can't take passengers. You'll slow me down. Isabel sighed. Look, how about this? Let's pretend we've had the row and I've won, see? It saves a lot of effort. I actually think you might find Binky rather reluctant to go if I'm not there. I've fed him an awful lot of sugar lumps over the years. Now, are we going? Albert sat on his narrow bed, glowering at the wall. He heard the sound of hoofbeats, abruptly cut off as Binky got airborne, and muttered under his breath. Twenty minutes passed. Expressions flitted across the old wizard's face like cloud shadows across a hillside. Occasionally, he'd whisper something to himself like, I told him, or never would have stood for it, or the master ought to be told. Eventually, he seemed to reach an agreement with himself, knelt down gingerly and pulled a battered trunk from under his bed. He opened it with difficulty and unfolded a dusty grey robe that scattered mothballs and tarnished sequins across the floor. He pulled it on, brushed off the worst of the dust, and crawled under the bed again. 
There was a lot of muffled cursing and the occasional clink of china, and finally Albert emerged, holding a staff taller than he was. It was thicker than any normal staff, mainly because of the carvings that covered it from top to bottom. They were actually quite indistinct, but gave the impression that if you could see them better, you would regret it. Albert brushed himself down again and examined himself critically in the washstand mirror. Then he said, Hat. No hat. Got to have a hat for the wizarding. Damn. He stamped out of the room and returned after a busy fifteen minutes, which included a circular hole cut out of the carpet in Mort's bedroom, the silver paper taken out from behind the mirror in Isabel's room, a needle and thread from the box under the sink in the kitchen, and a few loose sequins scraped up from the bottom of the robe chest. The end result was not as good as he would have liked, and tended to slip rakishly over one eye, but it was black, and had stars and moons on it, and proclaimed its owner to be, without any doubt, a wizard, although possibly a desperate one. He felt properly dressed for the first time in two thousand years. It was a disconcerting feeling and caused him a second's reflection before he kicked aside the rag rug beside the bed and used the staff to draw a circle on the floor. When the tip of the staff passed, it left a line of glowing octarine, the eighth colour of the spectrum, the colour of magic, the pigment of the imagination. He marked eight points on its circumference and joined them up to form an octogram. A low throbbing began to fill the room. Alberto Malik stepped into the centre and held the staff above his head. He felt it wake to his grip, felt the tingle of the sleeping power unfold itself slowly and deliberately, like a waking tiger. It triggered old memories of power and magic that buzzed through the cobwebbed attics of his mind. He felt alive for the first time in centuries. He licked his lips. The throbbing had died away, leaving a strange, waiting kind of silence. Malik raised his head and shouted one single syllable. Blue-green fire flashed from both ends of the staff. Streams of octarine flame spouted from the eight points of the octogram and enveloped the wizard. All this wasn't exactly necessary to accomplish the spell, but wizards consider appearances are very important. So are disappearances. He vanished. Stratohemispheric winds whipped at Mort's cloak. Where are we going first? yelled Isabel in his ear. Bespelargic, shouted Mort, the gale whirling his words away. Where's that? Agatean Empire, counterweight continent, he pointed downward. He wasn't forcing Binky at the moment, knowing the miles that lay ahead, and the big white horse was currently running at an easy gallop out over the ocean. Isabel looked down at the roaring green waves topped with white foam, and clung tighter to Mort. Mort peered ahead at the cloud bank that marked the distant continent and resisted the urge to hurry Binky along with the flat of his sword. He'd never struck the horse and wasn't at all confident about what would happen if he did. All he could do was wait. A hand appeared under his arm, holding a sandwich. There's ham or cheese and chutney, she said. You might as well eat. There's nothing else to do. Mort looked down at the soggy triangle and tried to remember when he last had a meal. Sometime beyond the reach of a clock, anyway. He'd need a calendar to calculate it. He took the sandwich. Thanks, he said as graciously as he could manage. The tiny sun rolled down towards the horizon, towing its lazy daylight behind it. The clouds ahead grew and became outlined in pink and orange. After a while, he could make out a darker blur of land below them, with here and there the lights of a city. 
Half an hour later, he was sure he could see individual buildings, Agatean architecture inclined towards squat pyramids. Binky lost height until his hooves were barely a few feet above the sea. Mort examined the hourglass again and gently tugged on the reins to direct the horse towards a seaport, a little rimwards of their present course. There were a few ships at anchor, mostly single-sailed coastal traders. The Empire didn't encourage its subjects to go far away in case they saw things that might disturb them. For the same reason, it had built a wall around the entire country patrolled by the Heavenly Guard, whose main function was to tread heavily on the fingers of any inhabitants who felt they might like to step outside for five minutes for a breath of fresh air. This didn't happen often, because most of the subjects of the Sun Emperor were quite happy to live inside the wall. It's a fact of life that everyone is on one side or other of a wall, so the only thing to do is forget about it, or evolve stronger fingers. Who runs this place? said Isabel as they passed over the harbour. There is some kind of boy emperor, said Mort, but the top man is really the Grand Vizier, I think. Never trust a Grand Vizier, said Isabel wisely. In fact, the Sun Emperor didn't. The Vizier, whose name was Nine Turning Mirrors, had some very clear views about who should run the country, e.g. that it should be him, and now the boy was getting big enough to ask questions like, Don't you think the wall would look better with a few gates in it? And, Yes, but what is it like on the other side? He had decided that in the Emperor's own best interests, he should be painfully poisoned and buried in quicklime. Binky landed on the raked gravel outside the low, many-roomed palace, severely rearranging the harmony of the universe. The stone garden of universal peace and simplicity, laid out to the orders of the old emperor One Sun Mirror, whose other claim to fame was his habit of cutting off his enemies' lips and legs and then promising them their freedom if they could run through the city playing a trumpet, used economy of position and shadow to symbolise the basic unity of soul and matter and the harmony of all things. It was said the secrets at the very heart of reality lay hidden in the precise ordering of its stones. Mort slid off his back and helped Isabel down. Just don't get in the way, will you? he said urgently. And don't ask questions either. He ran up some lacquered steps and hurried through the silent rooms, pausing occasionally to take his bearings from the hourglass. At last he sidled down a corridor and peered through an ornate lattice into a long, low room where the court was at its evening meal. The young Sun Emperor was sitting cross-legged at the head of the mat with his cloak of vermin and feathers spread out behind him. He looked as though he was outgrowing it. The rest of the court was sitting around the mat in strict and complicated order of precedence, but there was no mistaking the vizier who was tucking into his bowl of squishy and boiled seaweed in a highly suspicious fashion. No one seemed to be about to die. Mort padded along the passage, turned the corner, and nearly walked into several large members of the Heavenly Guard, who were clustered around a spy hole in the paper wall and passing a cigarette from hand to hand in that palm-cupped way of soldiers on duty. He tiptoed back to the lattice and overheard the conversation thus. I am the most unfortunate of mortals, O imminent presence, to find such as this in my otherwise satisfactory squishy said the vizier, extending his chopsticks. The court craned to see. So did Mort. Mort couldn't help agreeing with the statement, though the thing was a sort of blue-green lump with rubbery tubes dangling from it. The preparer of food will be disciplined, noble personage of scholarship, said the emperor. Who got the spare ribs? 
know, O perceptive father of your people, I was rather referring to the fact that this is, I believe, the bladder and spleen of the deep-water puff-eel, allegedly the most tasty of morsels, to the extent that it may be eaten only by those beloved of the gods themselves, or so it is written. Among such company, of course, I do not include my miserable self. With a deft flick, he transported it to the bowl of the emperor, where it wobbled to a standstill. The boy looked at it for some time and then skewered it on a chopstick. Ah, he said, but is it not also written by none other than the great philosopher Lee Tin Weedle that a scholar may be ranked above princes? I seem to remember you giving me the passage to read once, O faithful and assiduous seeker of knowledge. The thing followed another brief arc through the air and flopped apologetically into the vizier's bowl. He scooped it up in a quick movement and poised it for a second service. His eyes narrowed. Such may generally be the case, O Jade River of Wisdom, but specifically I cannot be ranked above the Emperor, whom I love as my own son, and have done ever since his late father's unfortunate death, and thus I lay this small offering at your feet. The eyes of the court followed the wretched organ on its third flight across the mat, but the Emperor snatched up his fan and brought off a magnificent volley that ended back in the vizier's bowl with such force that it sent up a spray of seaweed. "'Somebody eat it for heaven's sake!' shouted Mort, totally unheard. "'I'm in a hurry!' "'Thou art indeed the most thoughtful of servants, O devoted and indeed only companion of my late father and grandfather when they passed over, and therefore I decree that your reward shall be this most rare and exquisite of morsels.' The vizier prodded the thing uncertainly and looked into the emperor's smile. It was bright and terrible. He fumbled for an excuse. Uh, alas, it would seem that I have already eaten far too much, he began, but the emperor waved him into silence. Doubtless it requires a suitable seasoning, he said, and clapped his hands. The wall behind him ripped from top to bottom, and four heavenly guards stepped through, three of them brandishing kando swords, and the fourth trying hurriedly to swallow a lighted dog end. The vizier's bowl dropped from his hands. My most faithful of servants believes he has no space left for this final mouthful, said the emperor. Doubtless you can investigate his stomach to see if this is true. Why has that man got smoke coming out of his ears? Anxious for action, O oh sky eminence, said the sergeant quickly. No stopping him, I'm afraid. Then let him take his knife and... Oh, the vizier seems to be hungry after all. Well done. There was absolute silence while the vizier's cheeks bulged rhythmically. Then he gulped. Delicious, he said. Superb. Truly the food of the gods. And now, if you will excuse me, he unfolded his legs and made as if to stand up. Little beads of sweat had appeared on his forehead. You wish to depart, said the emperor, raising his eyebrows, pressing matters of state. Oh, perspicacious personage of... Be seated. Rising so soon after meals can be bad for the digestion, said the emperor, and the guards nodded agreement. Besides, there are no urgent matters of state. 
unless you refer to those in the small red bottle marked Antidote in the black lacquered cabinet on the bamboo rug in your quarters, O oh, lamp of midnight oil. There was a ringing in the vizier's ears. His face began to go blue. You see, said the emperor, untimely activity on a heavy stomach is conducive to ill humours. May this message go swiftly to all corners of my country, that all men may know of your unfortunate condition and derive instruction thereby. I must congratulate your personage on such consideration, said the vizier, and fell forward into a dish of boiled soft-shelled crabs. I had an excellent teacher, said the emperor. About time too, said Mort, and swung the sword. A moment later the soul of the vizier got up from the mat and looked Mort up and down. Who are you, barbarian? he snapped. Death. Not my death, said the vizier firmly. Where's the black celestial dragon of fire? He couldn't come, said Mort. There were shadows forming in the air behind the vizier's soul. Several of them wore emperor's robes, but there were plenty of others jostling them, and they all looked most anxious to welcome the newcomer to the lands of the dead. I think there's some people here to see you, said Mort, and hurried away. As he reached the passageway, the vizier's soul started to scream. Isabel was standing patiently by Binky, who was making a late lunch of a five-hundred-year-old bonsai tree. One down, said Mort, climbing into the saddle. Come on. I've got a bad feeling about the next one, and we haven't much time. Albert materialised in the centre of Unseen University, in the same place, in fact, from which he had departed the world some two thousand years before. He grunted with satisfaction, and brushed a few specks of dust off his robe. He became aware that he was being watched. On looking up, he discovered that he had flashed into existence under the stern marble gaze of himself. He adjusted his spectacles and peered disapprovingly at the bronze plaque screwed to his pedestal. It said, Alberto Malik, founder of this university, AM 1222 to 1289. We will not see his like again. So much for prediction, he thought. And if they thought so much of him, they could at least have hired a decent sculptor. It was disgraceful. The nose was all wrong. Call that a leg. People had been carving their names on it, too. He couldn't be seen dead in a hat like that, either. Of course, if he could help it, he wouldn't be seen dead at all. Albert aimed an octarine thunderbolt at the ghastly thing and grinned evilly as it exploded into dust. Right, he said to the disc at large, I'm back. The tingle from the magic coursed all the way up his arm and started a warm glow in his mind. How he'd missed it all these years. Wizards came hurrying through the big double doors at the sound of the explosion and cleared the wrong conclusion from a standing start. There was the pedestal, empty. There was a cloud of marble dust over everything, and striding out of it, muttering to himself, was Albert. The wizards at the back of the crowd started to have it away as quickly and quietly as possible. There wasn't one of them that hadn't at some time in his jolly youth put a common bedroom utensil on old Albert's head, or carved his name somewhere on the statue's chilly anatomy, or spilled beer on the pedestal. Worse than that, too, during rag week, when the drink flowed quickly and the privy seemed too far to stagger. These had all seemed hilarious ideas at the time. They suddenly didn't now. Only two figures remained to face the statue's wrath. 
one because he had got his robe caught in the door, and the other because he was in fact an ape, and could therefore take a relaxed attitude to human affairs. Albert grabbed the wizard, who was trying desperately to walk into the wall. The man squealed. All right, all right, I admit it. I was drunk at the time. Believe me, I didn't mean it. Gosh, I'm sorry. I am so sorry. What are you bleating about, man? said Albert, genuinely puzzled. So sorry if I tried to tell you how sorry I am, we'd be... Stop this bloody nonsense. Albert glanced down at the little ape, who gave him a warm, friendly smile. What's your name, man? Yes, sir, I'll stop, sir. Right away, sir. No more nonsense, sir. Uh, uh, Rincewind, sir. Assistant librarian, if it's all right by you. Albert looked him up and down. The man had a desperate, scuffed look, like something left out for the laundry. He decided that if this was what wizarding had come to, someone ought to do something about it. What sort of librarian would have you for an assistant? He demanded irritably. Ooh! Something like a warm, soft leather glove tried to hold his hand. A monkey in my university? Uh, Orangutan, sir. He used to be a wizard, but he got caught in some magic, sir, and now he won't let us turn him back. He, he's the only one who knows where all the books are, said Rincewind urgently. I look after his bananas, he added, feeling some additional explanation was called for. Albert glared at him. Shut up. Shutting up right away, sir. And tell me where death is. Death, sir, said Rincewind, backing against the wall. Tall, skeletal, blue eyes, stalks, talks like this. Death. Seen him lately? Rincewind swallowed. Mm, not lately, sir. Well, I want him. This nonsense has got to stop. I'm going to stop it now, see? I want the eight most senior wizards assembled here, right? In half an hour, with all the necessary equipment to perform the rite of Ashkente. Is that understood? Not that the sight of you lot gives me any confidence, bunch of panty-wasters, the lot of you. And stop trying to hold my hand. Ooh. And now I'm going to the pub snapped Albert. Do they sell any halfway decent cat's piss anywhere these days? There's the, um, drum, sir, said Rincewind. The broken drum? In Filigree Street? Still there? Well, they, they change the name sometimes and rebuild it completely, but the site has been, um, on the site for years. I suspect you're pretty dry, eh, sir? Rincewind said with an air of ghastly camaraderie. What would you know about it? said Albert sharply. "'Absolutely nothing, sir,' said Rincewind promptly. "'I'm going to the drum, then. Half an hour, mind. "'And if they're not waiting for me when I come back, then... "'Well, they just better be.' "'He stormed out of the hall in a cloud of marble dust. "'Rincewind watched him go. "'The librarian held his hand. "'You know the worst of it?' said Rincewind. "'Ooh! I don't even remember walking under a mirror.' At about the time Albert was in the mended drum, arguing with the landlord over a yellowing bar tab that had been handed down carefully from father to son through one regicide, three civil wars, 61 major fires, 490 robberies and more than 15,000 barroom brawls to record the fact that Alberto Malik still owed the management three copper pieces plus interest currently standing at the contents of most of the disc's larger strong rooms, which proved once again that an Archean merchant with an un paid bill has the kind of memory that would make an elephant blink. At about this time,
Binky was leaving a vapour trail in skies above the great mysterious continent of Clatch. Far below, drums sounded in the scented, shadowy jungles, and columns of curling mist rose from hidden rivers where nameless beasts lurked under the surface and waited for supper to walk past. "'There's no more cheese. You'll have to have the ham,' said Isabel. "'What's that light over there?' "'The light dams,' said Mort. "'We're getting closer.' He pulled the hourglass out of his pocket and checked the level of sand. But not close enough, damn it! The light dams lay like pools of light, hubwards of their course, which is exactly what they were. Some of the tribes constructed mirror walls in the desert mountains to collect the disk sunlight, which is slow and slightly heavy. It was used as currency. Binky glided over the campfires of the nomads and the silent marshes of the Tsort River. Ahead of them, dark, familiar shapes began to reveal themselves in the moonlight. "'The pyramids of Tussort by moonlight,' breathed Isabel. "'How romantic!' "'More tired with the blood of thousands of slaves,' observed Mort. "'Please don't. I'm sorry, but the practical fact of the matter is that these—' "'All right, all right, you've made your point,' said Isabel irritably. "'It's a lot of effort to go to to bury a dead king,' said Mort.' as they circled above one of the smaller pyramids. They fill them full of preservative, you know, so they'll survive into the next world. Does it work? Not noticeably. Mort leaned over Binky's neck. Torches down there, he said. Hang on. A procession was winding away from the avenue of pyramids, led by a giant statue of Ofla, the crocodile god, borne by a hundred sweating slaves. Binky cantered above it, entirely unnoticed, and performed a perfect four-point landing on the hard-packed sand outside the pyramid's entrance. "'They've pickled another king,' said Mort. He examined the glass again in the moonlight. It was quite plain, not the sort normally associated with royalty. "'That can't be him,' said Isabel. "'They don't pickle them when they're still alive, do they?' "'I hope not, because I read where, before they do the preserving, they, um, cut them open and remove the, um... I don't want to hear it, all the um, soft bits, Mort concluded lamely. It's just as well the pickling doesn't work, really. Just imagine having to walk around with no... So it isn't the king you've come to take, said Isabel loudly. Who is it, then? Mort turned towards the dark entrance. It wouldn't be sealed until dawn to give time for the dead king's soul to leave. It looked deep and foreboding, hinting at purposes considerably more dire than, say, keeping a razor blade nice and sharp. Let's find out, he said. Look out, he's coming back. The university's eight most senior wizards shuffled into line, tried to smooth out their beards and in general made an unsuccessful effort to look presentable. It wasn't easy. They had been snatched from their workrooms or a postprandial brandy in front of a roaring fire or quiet contemplation under a handkerchief in a comfy chair somewhere and all of them were feeling extremely apprehensive and rather bewildered. They kept glancing at the empty pedestal. Only one creature could have duplicated the expressions on their faces, and that would be a pigeon who has heard not only that Lord Nelson has got down off his column, but has also been seen buying a twelve-ball repeater and a box of cartridges. "'He's coming up the corridor!' shouted Rincewind, and dived behind a pillar. The assembled mages watched the big double doors as if they were about to explode, which shows how prescient they were, because they exploded." Matchstick-sized bits of oak rained down among them, and a small, thin figure stood outlined against the light. It held a smoking staff in one hand. The other held a small yellow toad. Rainswind, bawled Albert. Sir, 
take this thing away and dispose of it. The toad crawled into Rincewind's hand and gave him an apologetic look. That's the last time that bloody landlord gives any lip to a wizard, said Albert with smug satisfaction. It seems I turned my back for a few hundred years and suddenly people in this town are encouraged to think they can talk back to wizards, eh? One of the senior wizards mumbled something. What was that? Speak up, that man! As the bursar of this university, I must say that we've always encouraged a good neighbour policy with respect to the community, mumbled the wizard, trying to avoid Albert's gimlet stare. He had an upturned chamber pot on his conscience, with three cases of obscene graffiti to be taken into consideration. Albert let his mouth drop open. Why? he said. Well, uh, a sense of, of civic duty. We feel it's vitally important that we show an example... Oh! The wizard tried desperately to beat out the flames in his beard. Albert lowered his staff and looked slowly along the row of mages. They swayed away from his stare like grass in a gale. Anyone else want to show a sense of civic duty? he said. Good neighbours, anybody? He drew himself up to his full height. You spineless maggots! I didn't found this university so you could lend people the bloody lawn mower. What's the use of having the power if you don't wield it? Man doesn't show you respect, you don't leave enough of his damn in to roast chestnuts on. Understand? Something like a soft sigh went up from the assembled wizards. They stared sadly at the toad in Rincewind's hand. Most of them, in the days of their youth, had mastered the art of getting rascally drunk at the drum. Of course, all that was behind them now, but the Guild of Merchants' annual knife-and-fork supper would have been held in the drum's upstairs room the following evening, and all the eighth-level wizards had been sent complimentary tickets. There would have been a roast swan and two kinds of trifle, and lots of fraternal toasts to our esteemed, nay, distinguished guests, until it was time for the college porters to turn up with the wheelbarrows. Albert strutted along the row, poking the occasional paunch with his staff. His mind danced and sang. Go back? Never. This was power. This was living. He'd challenge old Boniface and spit in his empty eye. By the smoking mirror of Grism, there's going to be a few changes around here. Those wizards who had studied history nodded uncomfortably. It would be back to the stone floors and getting up when it was still dark and no alcohol under any circumstances and memorising the true names of everything until the brain squeaked. What's that man doing? The wizard who had absent-mindedly reached for his tobacco pouch let the half-formed cigarette fall from his trembling fingers. It bounced when it hit the floor and all the wizards watched it roll with longing eyes until Albert stepped forward smartly and squashed it. Albert spun round. Rincewind, who had been following him as a sort of unofficial adjutant, nearly walked into him. You, rinse thing, do you smoke? No, sir, no, a uh, filthy habit. Rincewind avoided the gaze of his superiors. He was suddenly aware that he had made some lifelong enemies, and it was no consolation to know that he probably wouldn't have them for very long. Right, hold my staff. Now. You bunch of miserable backsliders, this is going to stop, do you hear? First thing tomorrow, up at dawn, three times round the quadrangle and back here for physical jerks. Balanced meals, study, healthy exercise 
and the bloody monkey goes to a circus first thing. Ooh. Several of the older wizards shut their eyes. But first, said Albert, lowering his voice, you will oblige me by setting up the right of Ashk Ente. I have some unfinished business, he added. Mort strode through the cat-black corridors of the pyramid, with Isabel hurrying along behind him. The faint glow from his sword illuminated unpleasant things. Offla the crocodile god was a cosmetic advert compared to some of the things the people of Tussort worshipped. In alcoves along the way were statues of creatures apparently built of all the bits God had left over. "'What are they here for?' whispered Isabel. "'The Tsortean priests say they come alive when the pyramid is sealed and prowl the corridors to protect the body of the king from tomb robbers,' said Mort. "'What horrible superstition!' "'Who said anything about superstition?' said Mort absently. "'They really come alive?' All oil say is when the Tsorteans put a curse on a place they don't mess about. Mort turned a corner, and Isabel lost sight of him for a heart-stopping moment. She scurried through the darkness and cannoned into him. He was examining a dog-headed bird. Ugh, she said. Doesn't it send shivers up your spine? No, said Mort flatly. Why not? Because I am Mort, he turned, and she saw his eyes glow like blue pinpoints. Stop it. I can't. She tried to laugh. It didn't work. You're not death, she said. You're only doing his job. Death is whoever does death's job. The shocked pause that followed this was broken by a groan from further along the dark passage. Mort turned on his heel and hurried towards it. He's right, thought Isabel. Even the way he moves. But the fear of the darkness that the light was dragging towards her overcame any other doubts, and she crept after him, around another corner, and into what appeared, in the fitful glow from the sword, to be a cross between a treasury and a very cluttered attic. "'What's this place?' she whispered. "'I've never seen so much stuff.' "'The king takes it with him into the next world,' said Mort. "'He certainly doesn't believe in travelling light. "'Look, there's a whole boat and a gold bathtub.' Doubtless he will wish to keep clean when he gets there. And all those statues. Those statues, I'm sorry to say, were people. Servants for the king, you understand. Isabel's face set grimly. The priests give them poison. There was another groan from the other side of the cluttered room. Mort followed it to its source, stepping awkwardly over rolls of carpet, bunches of dates, crates of crockery and piles of gems. The king obviously hadn't been able to decide what he was going to leave behind on his journey, so he'd decided to play safe and take everything. Only it doesn't always work quickly, Mort added somberly. Isabel clambered gamely after him and peered over a canoe at a young girl sprawled across a pile of rugs. She was wearing gauze trousers, a waistcoat cut from not enough material, and enough bangles to moor a decent-sized ship. There was a green stain around her mouth. Does it hurt? said Isabel quietly. No, they think it takes them to paradise. Does it? Maybe. Who knows? Mort took the hourglass out of an inner pocket and inspected it by the gleam of the sword. He seemed to be counting to himself, and then with a sudden movement, tossed the glass over his shoulder and brought the sword down with his other hand. The girl's shade sat up and stretched with a clink of ghostly jewellery. She caught sight of Mort and bowed her head. My lord. 
No one's lord, said Mort. Now run along to wherever you believe you're going. I shall be a concubine at the heavenly court of King Zetepshut, who will dwell among the stars forever, she said firmly. You don't have to be, said Isabel sharply. The girl turned to her, wide-eyed. Oh, but I must. I've been training for it, she said, as she faded from view. I've only managed to be handmaiden up till now. She vanished. Isabel stared with dark disapproval at the space she had occupied. Well, she said, and did you see what she had on? Let's get out of here. But it can't be true about King Hoosis dwelling among the stars, she grumbled as they found their way out of the crowded room. There's nothing but empty space up there. It's hard to explain, said Mort. He'll dwell among the stars in his own mind. With slaves? If that's what they think they are. That's not very fair. There's no justice, said Mort. Just us. They hurried back along the avenues of waiting ghouls, and were nearly running when they burst into the desert night air. Isabel leaned against the rough stonework and panted for breath. Mort wasn't out of breath. He wasn't breathing. I will take you wherever you want, he said, and then I must leave you. But I thought you wanted to rescue the princess. Mort shook his head. I have no choice. There are no choices. She ran forward and grabbed his arm as he turned towards the waiting binky. He removed her hand gently. I have finished my apprenticeship. It's all in your own mind, yelled Isabel. You're whatever you think you are. She stopped and looked down. The sand around Mort's feet was beginning to whip up in little spurts and twirling dust devils. There was a crackle in the air and a greasy feel. Mort looked uneasy. Someone is performing the rite of Ashk. It hit like a hammer, a force from out of the sky that blew the sand into a crater. There was a low buzzing and the smell of hot tin. Mort looked around himself in the gale of rushing sand, turning as if in a dream, alone in the calm centre of the gale. Lightning flashed in the whirling cloud. Deep inside his own mind, he struggled to break free, but something had him in its grip, and he could no more resist than a compass needle can ignore the compulsion to point towards the hub. At last he found what he was searching for. It was a doorway, edged in octarine light, leading to a short tunnel. There were figures at the other end, beckoning to him. Oi, come, he said, and then turned as he heard the sudden noise behind him. Eleven stone of young womanhood hit him squarely in the chest, lifting him off the ground. Mort landed with Isabel kneeling on him, holding on grimly to his arms. Let me go, he intoned. I have been summoned. Not you, idiot! She stared into the blue, pupilless pools of his eyes. It was like looking down a rushing tunnel. Mort arched his back and screamed a curse so ancient and virulent that in the strong magical field it actually took on a form, flapped its leathery wings and slunk away. A private thunderstorm crashed around the sand dunes. His eyes drew her again. She looked away before she dropped like a stone down a well made of blue light. I command you! Mort's voice could have cut holes in rock. Father tried that tone on me for years, she said calmly, generally when he wanted me to clean my bedroom. It didn't work then either. Mort screamed another curse, which flopped out of the air and tried to bury itself in the sand. The pain! It's all in your head, she said, bracing herself against the force that wanted to drag them towards that flickering doorway. You're not deaf, you're just Mort. 
You're whatever I think you are. In the centre of the blurred blueness of his eyes were two tiny brown dots rising at the speed of sight. The storm around them rose and wailed. Mort screamed. End of CD 6